Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry. We engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, we have a special episode featuring a live recording of a recent seminar for excellence in teaching on the campus of Baylor University. The session, titled Award-Winning Faculty Perspectives on Teacher Authority, was led by Nathan Alleman, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership, Byron Newberry, Professor of Mechanical Engineering, and Sarah Madsen, Doctoral Candidate in Educational Leadership, all at Baylor University. These presenters shared fascinating original research on the relationships between faculty career stage and perceptions and uses of authority in teaching. We are delighted to have Dr. Alleman, Dr. Newberry, and Ms. Madsen on the show. And for our listeners who want to work along with the chart that is mentioned at the beginning of the show, check out our show notes at baylor.edu slash atl slash podcast you'll find this episode in season number two and now on to the show thank you everybody for being here both in person and in zoom um and we're gonna start i want to just know one more person uh kara allen who was um when we started this, a uh, doctoral student in education, and now has uh, finished her degree and is working as assistant research director at the uh, Baylor Collaborative for Poverty and uh, Hunger. Hunger, yes, that's it. Um, and she was uh, also uh, contributed uh, early on to this uh, this project. So what we're going to do today is uh, share a little bit about our research with you, um, and and then share some of the insights that we got from it that uh, hopefully. Um, well, you might find useful to think about your own teaching. So before we jump into it, though, we have a little activity here. Um, those of you on Zoom, I think Christopher is going to uh, upload a document that you can use. Um, hopefully everybody got a handout. So this um, graphic here has uh, 30 words around the perimeter that are descriptors that potentially would be applied to a, somebody could you know, describe a teacher with these words. And so what we're gonna ask you to do is something impossible, which is uh, to, you know, all of these words are probably things that we would aspire to have someone describe us as as a teacher, but we want to have you narrow down to your top five words that most resonate with your self-perception of yourself as a teacher, or if you're an aspiring teacher, what you would aspire to be. And uh, you know, what, what five words best represent, best represent you or what you want to be. I'll give you a couple of minutes to uh, work on that. Yeah, I think most people have uh, chosen their words and hope the people on uh, Zoom have had uh, luck with the document and being able to do it them, themselves. Um, so we're gonna keep you in suspense for a few minutes about what this was about. Um, Nathan's gonna come up in a little bit and, uh, and kind of talk about this uh, in more detail. Uh, first, I'm going to give you kind of an introduction to what we uh, have done and why. Um, we start with the research question, um, 
what role do forms of power play in approaches for uh, exemplar teachers across career stages? And so the three important points in that is looking at forms of power, looking at exemplar teachers, uh, teachers that have uh, been recognized by their peers and students as being um, outstanding teachers, and looking at um, over the range of career stages. An important question is what do we mean by power? Power is a word that has a lot of different meanings and um, potentially a loaded word. So I want to explain what we mean by power. Um, we're using it in, the sense, in this sense that social power is the ability to influence other people's goals and attitudes, behaviors, beliefs, and so forth. And um, if you think about it, uh, that's what teachers really do is they influence students, right? They influence students. And so, um, and so to have that ability to influence students is a form of power. And there's different ways, different forms of that power that Nathan will get into in a little bit that uh, teachers have and are able to use. Um, another word that we kind of use interchangeably sometimes with the word power is authority. Um, our, our definition for the purposes of our research was a legitimate and appropriate use of power as opposed to like an authoritarian use of power, um, the ability to kind of inspire someone to do something rather than to compel them to do something, right? Why are we interested in this? Um, well, a teacher's um, credibility and effectiveness depends on the ability to influence students. So teachers have to have some type of power to influence. And what we wanted to know was to, you know, the kind of presumption was that um, exemplar teachers, outstanding teachers um, who are really effective have a lot of influence over their students. I mean, we can all think about some teacher we had in the past that had a big impact on our lives, right? Had a big influence on us. And that meant they had some power to, you know, reach us. And so um, presumption was that, you know, um, exemplar teachers have a lot of power and use it in effective ways, right? And so we want to kind of find out how they do that. Um, our study, um, just to give you a real brief overview of what we did, we had um, 23 full-time faculty that we interviewed that all had won at least two um, institutional teaching awards. We got a range of participants, uh, teaching role and ranks. We had uh, people on tenure track, not on tenure track, uh, tried to get a range of departments across um, the institution. Um, we had it divided uh, kind of equally between genders. We had um, also looked at trying to get people from all stages of their careers. And so we kind of grouped people by career stage in these three groups, uh, less than 10 years, called early, 11 to 20 years uh, mid, and then after after 20 years, uh, late career people. And then we uh, conducted semi-structured kind of in-depth interviews with uh, <coughs> all the participants. And that was the data that we used to base our findings on. And I'll turn it over to Nathan and he'll go into a little more detail. Thanks, Byron. Well, um, that's great setup. So uh, when we're talking about power in the context of this study, we are talking about three domains of power. So we're gonna break this out a little bit further and explore it. Um, so uh, these domains of power come from research now almost 70 years old, French and Raven in the late 50s developed these related to teaching and they have a long empirical career since then. Um, the three we're focused on are pro-social, they're positive. There's also some negative forms of power that have been explored as well, but we're focused on three positive ones. So the first one is the formal domain or things having to do with the construction of the course, the syllabus, the pacing, the materials, the content, all the things that go into constructing a course are part of this uh, formal power of, of, um, of a teacher. 
the second one is an expert domain. This has to do clearly enough with what one knows, um, the content and knowledge that, that one has uh, about the subject is being taught. And uh, importantly relates to as well how it's perceived by others. You are an expert in this sense if people recognize you're an expert and are sort of drawn to or animated by the expertise that you display, uh, convinced by your, your expertise. So, so not just having it, but also being able to convey it in a convincing way. And the third element is, um, or domain is referent uh, power, which is relation, relational power. Um, the ability to establish trust, rapport, connections, common interests, all those things that, that make you feel in some pro-social way that like, you're connected or, or see the value in, in your students and they, they believe that you are for them and have some connection to them that they, they see you as a person. Um, so the big reveal. <laughs> Here are uh, the forms of power. Thank you for that appropriate gap. <laughs> forms of power at, um, on your sheet. And what you can do is you can see which I think we have uh, yep, further mapped out. Um, so blue is expert power. Yellow is formal power. Green is referent power. So what I'd like you to do is look at your chart and maybe if you made lines, like write what, what that formal power is because we're gonna move on from this slide you might wanna know. So uh, jot down for yourself and, and look, at, look at a couple of things. One, the relative distribution of the, of the things you chose. Do they tend to be in one of the three forms of power more than others or are they distributed equally? Um, and, and maybe then what does that suggest to you about the kinds of power you're maybe more comfortable with or less comfortable with or more familiar with or less familiar with. Uh, the presumption is that these are uh, available and necessary for all, all faculty have to use all these forms of power. And yet we are often oriented maybe for various reasons to some over other. Um, so what we wanna know and what we're gonna spend some time talking about, it's not just are, what are you comfortable with or where do you gravitate toward, but, but, but ultimately how do these relate to career stages and maybe how do they relate to each other as we go along through our data. So we'll, We'll, we'll explore this together. So some, some things we found. Um, again, with early career, one of the things that, that we found was that uh, there, there's kind of this emphasis on selling the class. Like I, I, I need my students to believe that this is worthwhile to them. Well, how do I accomplish that? Well, Misty here says, I was very intentional, very intentionally want the students to understand that while we divvy up material into chapters, we're still telling one big story. And that is, what is a cell and how does it operate? So I think that when I'm on my game, that when I'm on my best, I'm showing them that these concepts are A, integrated and B, very pertinent to their world. So uh, what you see here, there's expertise, there's formal authority coming together. I'm, I'm showing them the value of this and I'm structuring in a way that's obvious to them. They're getting a sense of my expertise from the way that I've done these things. Um, here we have Tim uh, doing something similar, um, although in, in this case, it's connecting to students and their interests and the content. Um, Tim says from an earlier presentation, the student had done, I knew that he was a shooting enthusiast as am I. And so I just very matter of factly said, I think what might really work well here is a shotgun magazine. Uh, here. And then I just casually mentioned to his team, like, yeah, like shoot trap. I was just taking part of my shotgun the other night and I just thought of that. So saying, oh, this is a, a student has this interest outside of the academic realm. I can connect not just personally, but with the content. So this is leveraging of both the interpersonal and expertise 
to uh, sell the value of the class together. Uh, a challenge um, for early career faculty that came up a lot was how to balance this idea of warmth and authority. How do you be an accessible person, but also still get respect? And, and Marie talks about this here. She says, I think the thing I struggle with the most is figuring out how to give meaningful, honest feedback without wrecking hopes and dreams. <laughs> I think everyone who's ever taught has that kind of that kind of fear, like, ah, uh, you know, take me seriously, but also, you know, <laughs> so you can see the converging of all three, I think, uh, of the forms of power um, in, in this concern that she has. Mid-career, uh, the shift, there's a, a shift a little bit, same elements, but often toward um, how do we how do we take what we call the longer view of learning or, or the sort of like a deeper, more complex, but maybe slower developing way of thinking about, about the kind of learning that's happening. Um, and we can see this in this quote from, uh, from David here. Uh, David's here setting up, setting up these elements says, in bioethics for years, I taught the class just like a standard 4,000. So at the end of each segment, there's an exam. So the exams are like, here's a bunch of indications and here's some essay questions. But I realized as part of the problem was that it did not either assess or force the students to grow or force me and my teaching to develop the main thing I wanted the class to do. And so the last couple of times I taught the class, I radically changed the assignments. Instead, what I did was test. The test really became one or two or three major scenarios. So he's beginning to think differently about his content, the construction, how to use his expertise that he has, but in a way that, that seeds learning throughout a semester that, that gets students thinking differently about learning. Um, and this is the shift from, I just got to get content down here that, that students can understand to how do I really see long-term learning um, in my students? Um, a second element um, engages this, the referent power element, or, or how do I pull students into this longer view of learning? Um, this says Allison, it's actually Susan, did I get that right? Sorry, Susan says, I take a strong mentor position relative to them, sort of developmental. So looking for what they, looking to learn about them and figuring out what they're interested in and good at, and then help them to channel it toward the future. So when they start to show an interest in some aspect of our field or an aptitude, some particular skill set or content, I try to point that out to them. So I, I see what's happening for them as an emerging professional scholar. I want to connect them to, uh, personally connect them to this emerging sense of expertise, not just like have you learned the content, but who are you becoming as an expert in the field uses different kinds of power. So uh, late career faculty, uh, again, using the same forms of power, but in, in slightly different ways, um, it is they're, they're established in their careers. They have maybe a little less to prove in some ways, but it also puts them sometimes in a position of distance um, uh, in, in various ways that have to be bridged or, or can be used in different ways. So Natasha here says, the older I've gotten, raising my own family and dealing with my own circumstances, I've got more compassionate about things, obstacles that people may have to have to completing something on time. So people can ask me for an extension, but I don't vary that much in the quality of what I'm expecting. So there's maybe a little bit of referent connection there. I'm, I'm connecting. I, I get that life is hard. Being a student is hard. And yet I'm still trying to hold these standards, standards of, of excellence um, and, and, and the formal structures I've created. Um, in a similar way, the, the referent element comes in here with Frank, who, who talks about the challenges of maybe 
seeming more distant from what an expert looks like. He says, um, asking the question, is this someone that I would go to to ask advice? That's an important rapport building question. How does he know this? Why should I trust his knowledge? I mean, right now I'm 54. I'm an old man who's not as digital as they are. And it's important for me to have global local knowledge that's better than what they can Google. And so I rebuild that from time to time in surprising ways through alumni connections, or through people I know, where I've been, where I've been quoted in the press if I need to, things like that. So um, he's got this sense that like, uh, I'm a little older, but um, part of what I can do is leverage my um, established relationships with previous students, with scholarship I've done to demonstrate my expertise, that I have valuable knowledge that continues to be relevant, even though maybe I'm a little bit further from the easy connections that people often can build when they're younger faculty, but have concerns about the, the power and the, the authority elements. Uh, as we continue to think about power, and as Nathan highlighted in the findings, we see that faculty across all career stages, early, mid, and late, used all forms of power, formal, uh, expert, and referent domains. And maybe what you've begun to see in your own kind of worksheet is that these forms of power do not exist as disparate, distinct domains. Uh, and the exemplar faculty in our study use these forms of power in multifaceted intersectional ways. That is, they use the power domains together and simultaneously. Uh, so here you'll see, again, expert, formal, and referent domains. And you can begin to see the overlap, which I will talk more about. And so what we uh, kind of conceptualize these intersections as, as forms of authority. So again, authority is the legitimate use of power, the appropriate use of power. So first, pedagogical authority, we've named at the intersection of formal and expert power. So here, teachers are using um, their expertise, their content knowledge with their role, so being able to structure a class to create a kind of a legitimacy, a sense of legitimacy, a sense of interest in the classroom. We're calling that pedagogical authority. Uh, next, personal authority sits at the intersection of expert and referent power. So here we see faculty, again, drawing on their expertise, their training, their knowledge of the field, and also their connections with students uh, to exert this kind of personal authority, personal influence over students. And then finally, there is relational authority at the intersection of formal and referent power, again, using the kind of structural capacities imbued in the role of teacher to create connections with students. Now, another layer on top of these power intersections is that exemplar teachers in our study use these intersections in patterned ways. So early career faculty, Imagine you're in the first 10 years of a job, maybe you're on the tenure track, maybe you're a lecturer. They were very concerned, as Nathan shared, with selling the class, with winning students over, with establishing their leg legitimacy in the classroom, but also in garnering student interest. And because of that, early career faculty in our study uh, most often relied on expert and formal power. So we'll go back to this quote from Misty. Again, we see Misty as organizer, Misty as expert. She's seeing the narrative arc of her course. She's able to break it down into manageable subsections. And in doing so, she's trying to show to her students that this information is pertinent, is relevant to the student's world. So again, she's drawing on expert and formal power together uh, to sell the class to win students over. And we 
uh, named that pedagogical authority. Okay, mid-career faculty. So think again of faculty who are more seasoned, uh, 11 to 20 years um, in their time in the classroom. And here we saw mid-career faculty committed to the formation of students, students as lifelong learners, students as future professionals. So again, taking a longer view of student learning. So we'll go back to Susan's quote, and Susan uses language of mentor. Other mid-career faculty talked about being shepherds, shepherding students along. So here they're drawing on their expertise. They know the field. They know the content. That is not their struggle. Uh, and they're connecting students to that field, to that information um, through the mentorship, through uh, the shepherding. And so here, again, referent power and expert together result in personal authority. Finally, uh, late career faculty most often relied on formal and referent power. So we heard late uh, career faculty in our study. So again, professors who have been in the classroom over 20 years say, I know I have this wisdom. I know I have advice for students, but maybe I can't connect with them in the same way. Like I'm talking about the matrix and students have never seen the matrix. <laughs> so, <laughs> late career faculty then, leveraged opportunities, use their formal power to create spaces to connect with students more deeply. They talk about students as co-learners, um, as engaged in mutual ways in the classroom. So again, the example of Frank, he's reminding students, like, I'm still relevant to you. I want to connect with you. I want to share this knowledge with you. Uh, because ultimately, late career faculty, again, are concerned with being accessible to students um, and spurring on students' deep learning. So uh, just in closing about our teacher power and authority framework, uh, again, we see these patterned uses of power across career stage. Uh, and looking at those patterns, distinct context and aims of those particular classrooms are revealed to us. The struggles, the tasks, the tension of early career faculty is not the same as late career faculty, but uh, through the lens of power, we can start to see those tasks, see the differences uh, between those tasks. Because of that, then we can think about professional development in a different way. Our hope today is that you leave this uh, kind of setting thinking about, okay, how am I being socialized to certain forms of power? How can I use power in maybe a larger pedagogical toolkit to connect with students or to establish expertise? Uh, so ultimately our power and authority framework Again, we're taking the original work of French Raven and trying to offer a more complex view that these power forms are not distinct, they're intersecting, um, and they show up in patterned ways across career stage. Are there any more questions or anything that came up in the Zoom? Our first question from the audience asked how the differences in power strategies correlated with the levels of the course being taught and whether or not the courses they taught were for majors. Yeah, I'm happy to share. Uh, so. Really, our uh, unit of analysis was career stage. Um, little work has been done in this area in terms of trying to push uh, power domain research forward. And so I think there are certainly opportunities. I know there's been questions about gender, um, about uh, class or course level. Those are levels uh, or units of analysis that, again, we're certainly interested in, um, but our focus was primarily career stage. I will say that, um, for late career faculty, I mean, by that point in your career, maybe you're teaching classes that you're handpicking, or they talked about, okay, I've taught this class 15 or 20 times. Um, so we saw, again, 
uh, late career faculty, of course, use expert power. That was almost like, that's in my back pocket. I don't need to worry about <laughs> teaching this class. Um, there were some tensions uh, for late career faculty in terms of like updating their work. So again, trying to stay relevant with students, like, okay, if I can't use the matrix as an example, that <laughs> movie I'm gonna use then to um, make the same point. Um, if anything, and feel free, Byron and Nathan, to jump in, I think we heard mid-career faculty kind of talk about the higher order thinking that comes with those more advanced course levels. So that kind of student formation, deep learning, is not wanting students to just regurgitate information. So think of the David example. I'm going to introduce scenarios where students have to um, kind of navigate and struggle with course material in ways that's not Here's the definition. Here's an essay that I thought about and turned in. Um, a kind of real life application, because again, mid-career faculty were concerned with um, developing lifelong learners um, and learners ready to enter the field that they knew so well. I don't want to overplay how much data we had on this, but we certainly had um, faculty talking about um, how reference power looks different, like an introductory uh, first-year class than might with. A senior seminar where, where you relate differently, relate more laterally with, with students, uh, how much you share about yourself, uh, at what point in the semester you begin sharing yourself, or what they already know about you, which, which kind of preloads some of those maybe referent bonds because they already know you've had you for three or four classes, very different than a first year student coming in. You're like, I, I, it may be for some, it was like week one, I want them to know who I am. For others, it's like week six, I tell them, like I've got a dog, you know, <laughs> you know, I've let them in It just, so very different strategies about how, and some of that had to do with gender, career stage, some of those things about whether it, um, establishing that expertise first was really important or trying to build that reference connection to the different strategies around that. Are there any other questions? Well, so um, as we've been talking about uh, over, you know, our faculty members uh, career arc, Lots of things change, your experience levels, your priorities, uh, relationships, you know, instructional tools you have available and your responsibilities, uh, both uh, at work and at home and so forth. And so um, this idea that, you know, opportunities and challenges at each stage uh, present themselves for trying to leverage, uh, you know, various forms of power in order to influence your students in the ways you want to influence them, to have them learn and grow and develop. And uh, I've already mentioned some of those uh, challenges, for instance, uh, one of the things, you know, because we start this, start this about the time we start this research, uh, the pandemic struck. And so <laughs> um, one of the things that we kind of learned out of that, particularly for um, early career uh, faculty, was that um, pandemic switching to online learning and so forth presented particular obstacles or was uh, kind of disconcerting for early career faculty because there's you know, as I mentioned, one of the key things that they want to do is be able to, you know, engage students and sell their courses, right? And this, this is important, this is interesting, want you to be engaged with it. And, you know, going online kind of made that harder to do, right? And so that was a, a online learning turned out to be kind of a bigger concern for early career, early career faculty. Um, in uh, mid-career faculty, the one of the big things that popped out was a kind of attention that mid-career faculty often expressed was the idea of balancing um, compassion and flexibility with, you know, maintaining standards, right? And we saw that uh, 
was mentioned in one of the uh, quotes from a, a late career faculty that you know it's very comfortable being flexible with the students, right? Whereas mid-career faculty is more of attention, you know, how to balance those things. And it was also a point in people's lives where they're, you know, now you have kids and you've got lots of responsibilities and, and uh, um, both in, in at work and away from work. And so uh, that tension of balancing you know, kind of home life and work life popped out a lot too. And as was mentioned, the late career faculty, the, uh, the kind of distance now from, you know, sort of the uh, cultural distance from your students who are, you know, now much younger than you. And that was a, a challenge that uh, a lot of late career faculty talked about. There's also opportunities though, um, and the uh, early career, um, people are fresh off their dissertations and got a lot of knowledge about something and they want to share, right? And there's usually a lot of enthusiasm for that. Um, in the mid-career, student or faculty have become comfortable with just the general process of teaching and with their own expertise. And one of the opportunities that popped up a lot in the mid-career was wanting to now look at more creative ways to you know, change my teaching, right? And try some things that I might not have been comfortable with trying early in my career. And uh, in the late career, faculty you know, were very comfortable with their expertise, very comfortable with, you know, running a classroom and so forth. And now really wanted to explore how do I not just teach my students, but how do I try to think about them as whole people, right? And really look more to uh, developing them as people rather than just teaching them some content. And so those are the opportunities that uh, we kind of saw come out of the different stages. Um, so with that, to wrap things up by uh, asking if there's any other discussion or questions that you might have or insights that you want to share. Our next question asked how early career teachers in the study navigated the divide between their experiences and the experiences of mentors or pedagogy scholars who are in the middle or late career stages, but are the main source for teaching advice. I think what's helpful to think about for me is how the simpler faculty perceived the core task at hand in front of them. And so it was almost like, okay, because my task is selling this course, winning students over, early career faculty may have an imagination for, okay, post-tenure, I wanted to do these ways. Or, okay, maybe once I've taught this class a few more years, I can teach a different class. But I think what our analysis points to is that there is this core task and so the usage of power was um, kind of structured around addressing that core task. Again, not that they didn't have imagination for what would come later down the road, um, but especially for early career working the task. I think it got more complicated for mid-career faculty who were then taking on chairs, teams, administrative roles, and they felt in some ways less sure about what then their task was. Okay, so I'm an excellent teacher and I want to students, but I have to do all this paperwork. And so that kind of reconfiguration of self, I think, happened again in um, a weird stage, but trying to think about again the kind of core tasks and tensions that are inherent in this kind of, in some ways, artificial teaching blocks, but I think helpful. Yeah, I'd add to that. Uh, you're, you're Point about gender then kicks in there too because these kind of these modifiers to the to the core task such as I look young because you are young or you just happen to appear that way or 
I'm a woman or I, you know, I speak with an accent or, you know, these things that, that bring um, other, other challenges that require different or maybe particular use of, uh, of, of power. So like, how do I appear to people? Do I appear like an expert, physically appear like an expert? Do I, am I too relatable as someone who looks young? Those were a lot of tasks that early career faculty in particular but uh, um, we had people who are mid-career like, hey, I, I had a career as a physician. I came in here like I got a world of experience. I don't care what these students think, of, <laughs> you know, because I, I've got just this bulk of experience behind me. And they recognize that like straight out of the gate. So there's a lot of sort of bravado that comes with kind of real world experience. Whereas uh, early career faculty straight off the tenure track, like, OK, I haven't really done anything yet, but, you know, I'm, I'm full of knowledge and potential. So you just got to kind of ride that out a little bit until you know you get your sea legs and that and that uh you know the power elements of thinking to make it are, are in there as well but i think uh, take on the particular characteristics of a person in there uh and their sort of demographic uh, realities as well just to you know the, we had you do the worksheet there that's something we, we haven't done before with anybody and so we weren't sure exactly what was going to happen <laughs> but uh it was interesting to me that um most people in here you know referent was the most uh, common um, thread. And just kind of stereotyping by appearance, uh, most of you look like early career people. And so that's actually a little bit at odds with the finding, which was that early career people tend to focus most of their energies into the formal and uh, expert domains. But I think, I think that actually makes a little sense because um, early career people probably don't have as much worry about being able to relate to the students, right? What you're worried about in your early career is establishing yourself as expert and in control of the classroom, right? And so that makes a lot of sense to me why that would be the case. Another participant observed that referent and expert power seemed more important in the transition to Zoom during the pandemic, in part because formal aspects of Zoom were so difficult. They asked what changes our researchers saw during the shift to online learning. That's interesting. Yeah, the question of how do you how do you develop um, reference power, use reference power in an online setting? If you haven't had prior, did you have these students before? Was the class interrupted? Um, I know from other experiences, those the ones that that had been in person before were very different than the ones who started online. The final question asked whether teaching multiple sections of the same course had an effect. I remember one example off the top of my head from some mid career professor. And what he was really struggling with was teaching back-to-back -back sections of the same course um, over in the Honors College and really trying to work on reference power, connecting with students. And the first course, he's like, oh, my examples are hitting. I'm connecting with students. And students are buying in. I go to the second section. I say the same exact things, and it falls flat. So really, this moment of trying to work through, OK, is even just the difference of the people in front of me enough to have to kind of change or modify the ways I'm working at reference power? I don't know at that point in the interview if he had a solution, but certainly attention felt by him of, OK, it's different people in front of me. I'm trying to connect with these students. Maybe I need to have a repertoire of examples or um, multiple references to see what um, kind of hits or sticks with students. Um, he, like other mid-career faculty, 
was also trying to be creative with assignments. So a lot of times he would split the class in two and have them like debate a topic or a social issue. And so we'd say, okay, in one class, section one, they're like fired up. Like they're going at it. Second section, like this, this could be on either side. They're not feeling that passionate. So even in that creativity of, of mid-career faculty, it wasn't, okay, I tried this new thing and it worked perfectly, but okay, I'm trying my hand. I, I have the expertise to kind of know the content. How can I kind of continue to adjust here to pull students in? So again, kind of the expert and preference um, power pieces together. Just tagging off of what uh, Sarah's saying, I think one, for me, one useful thing about thinking uh, this, this mental construct of forms of power and thinking about it, my teaching that way, is that if, if I'm doing something in the classroom that doesn't seem to be working, I ask myself, you know, how do I fix that? What do I need to do different? I think it's useful for me to think about it. And, you know, there's from these perspectives of the three forms of power. Is it because they don't think I know what I'm talking about? Is it because that they don't think I have a good plan for how we do this? Is it because they just don't like me or, you know, what is it I need to fix, right? And so this gives kind of some levers that you can pull, right? Um, trying to figure out what's, what might work or, or what might not work and why. And so uh, it's been useful for me to think about things this way. Our thanks to Nathan Oliman, Byron Newberry, and Sarah Madsen for presenting at this seminar for excellence in teaching and for allowing us to include this presentation as a podcast episode as well. In the show notes, again, you'll find the handout that was used in this session, as well as a Wikipedia link to French and Raven's Theory of Power, which was referenced several times, and our edited volume, Called to Teach, which features an earlier essay by Byron Newberry about this topic. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy. <laughs>